0: This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to speak with Birgit Oppels. Birgit is professor of cultural musicology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. She has conducted ethnographic and ethnomusicological research in multiple sites across Asia, and she is the principal investigator on the European Research Council project Sound Knowledge, Alternative Epistemologies of Music in the Western Pacific Island World. Today we are talking about Birgit's new book, Music Worlding in Palau, Chanting, Atmospheres, and Meaningfulness. The book was released in 2022 as part of the Global Asia series published by EAS and Amsterdam University Press. Chanting holds a special place in Palau. In the following conversation, Birgit discusses the theoretical dimension of her work and walks me through some specific field recordings. As you'll hear, sound and music offer a window into much broader issues, raising questions of the self, of community, of politics, and of becoming. Music Worlding in Palau was also released as an open access title, so it's free to download at the Amsterdam University Press website. I would encourage listeners to read it and also to listen to more of the field recordings provided in the e-book. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Birgit Oppels. Birgit Appels, thank you so much for joining me on the channel today to talk about your work in ethnomusicology and the new book that has come out of that. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, a big thank you to you, Ben. Uh, Thanks for having me. And also, of course, for your interest in my work. I'm very excited to be doing this podcast interview. It's just a great medium if you work with music.
0: Can you start by introducing yourself and your academic background? How did you get interested in Palau in general and in its musical traditions in particular?
1: Sure, uh, I'm happy to. I'm a musicologist by training. Um, For as long as I can think, I've been interested in how people make and experience music on the one hand and how they make sense of the world musically on the other. So... um, you know, when we engage with music, we realize and we feel stuff we don't get to feel in any other way. That's why, thankfully, there's so much music around. Um, But still, uh, there's that something about music, that proverbial power of music. In mysterious ways, uh, it seems music can touch us and teach us. We just You know, can't wrap our heads around it or describe it in words. That's always been the phenomenon that's piqued my interest the most and that, um, well, I just keep studying. I can say it hasn't gotten boring since I started out in the late 1990s, quite to the contrary. Um, About my background, I studied in Germany and then in the UK. For my master's project, I spent some time in India before I finally embarked on my PhD journey, which would bring me to Palau for the first time. There was very little work on Palau back in the day, uh, in music studies, that is, Um, but there were historical sound recordings from the first decade of the 20th century. And I thought that was a fantastic opportunity uh, to be able to study Palau music and have those really old wax cylinder recordings for historical context. So um, off I went. And then after finishing my PhD, I spent a couple of years doing postdoctoral work in maritime Southeast Asia working on uh, so-called sea nomads uh, who go back and forth between northern Borneo and the southern Philippines. But Micronesia has always uh, been the main focus of my work, really. So, um, yeah, it made a lot of sense for me to return to Micronesia and specifically to uh, Palau also with my uh, recent book.
0: Palau comprises a small island group in western Micronesia. Can you just sketch the history and geography of Palau for listeners who might not be familiar, given that, as you alluded to just now, it tends to be slightly less represented within the Asian studies world. So it would be great if you could just introduce it a little bit.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, The Republic of Palau, that's uh, Belau in Palau, is a small, a very small, actually, island nation in the westernmost corner of the Pacific Island world. It's situated some 800 kilometers southeast from the Philippine coast. Geographically, it belongs to Micronesia, but it's not part of the federated states of Micronesia, which is a neighboring country. Now, if you look at a map of this little corner of the world, there will be a lot of blue and a couple of tiny dots here and there. But uh, obviously, that's a very North Atlantic and Pacific Islander perspective. According to the Palauan genesis, in the very beginning, there were two land masses. The Palauan myth of origin describes the creation of the first beings on Earth the emergence of the first stone bridge, uh, which is essentially both a literal and metaphorical connection between the sea and the land. Along with the land, um, political structure, including geographical order, was established. So there's a connection to the island's divine origin in uh, well, in present-day Palau in, in its natural in, environment. This order has always run parallel with the unfolding of family and clan lineages over time. And when in the final quarter of the 20th century, the former trust territory of the Pacific Islands, so that was a a U.S. American trusteeship um, of parts of Micronesia, took on its present political organization, uh, Tiny Palau opted to reestablish a political independence instead of joining the Federated States of Micronesia, which would have been, you know, uh, in many ways, an easier solution. Um, They eventually regained independence in 1994, which is somewhat late. Um putting an end to nearly a century of first Spanish, then German, then Japanese and then US colonization. And Palau's musical heritage today um certainly bears marks of this colonial history. Um but when I say bears marks Uh, I don't mean um, you know musical influences or something like that what I mean is that music making in Palau is a very intricate layered and sometimes contradictory relationship both to the colonial history and uh, to the post-colonial complexity of the islands today and yet in Palau music all those contradictions all those complexities sometimes they just makes sense. Not that it gets any easy um, uh, in music, but uh, things just seem to have a place somehow.
0: I have to say that before reading your book, I was almost completely unfamiliar with the performing arts traditions of Palau. So for other listeners who might be unfamiliar like I was, how would you describe the kinds of music that you went to Palau to study?
1: Well, first of all, the term music needs a little qualification here, um, because traditionally there's actually no clear distinction between uh, music versus dance. So uh, sound and movement based cultural practices are deeply intertwined here, and it doesn't really make sense, at least not from a traditionally Palauan perspective, to distinguish between them. Um, There's a long-standing tradition of chanting in Palau, steeped in island wisdom and oral history. And in fact, uh, chants are a major medium also for oral history and mythology. Depending on the type of chant, they can come with body movement, what uh, we typically call dance then here in Europe, uh, or not. But in the traditional repertoire, there's hardly any involvement of musical instruments, um, except for body percussion. Um, that's different in the popular musical styles that have emerged in colonial Palau around the turn of the 20th century and that, of course, continue to thrive until today. There's a very vibrant and active popular music scene in Palau today. Um, so uh, if our listeners feel like getting a sense of it, I suggest you Google Palau radio stations uh, and listen, o- listen online. That's um, quite fun. My own work, though, is mostly centered around uh, the traditional repertoire, mostly chanting.
0: We're going to listen to some of those chants a little bit later in our conversation, and you can kind of walk us through that. But in terms of lyrical content and themes, you said these are often used, for example, for oral history. What are these chants and songs about lyrically?
1: I'd even say that they're the heart of Palauan oral history. Um, and by that, I mean that they are a key medium in which Palawan mythology, legends, but also historical events are recorded and passed on to future generations. Oftentimes, they don't give you the full story, but only bits and pieces of it. But uh, if you hang around long enough, or if you simply know your oral history, uh, you will be able to easily piece things together. It's essential to know that the stories these chants tell aren't just stories about the past. They are like a map with which you can navigate the complexities of Palauan society. They, they tell you how to make sense of, for instance, Palauan structure. They ooze a very Palauan historicity. And by that, they infuse any performance space with a sense of, well, what I like to call meaningfulness.
0: As an ethnographer, you're interested not only in sort of the formal structure or just the lyrical content of the music, but also in the experiences, the performances, the everyday uses that are associated with these chants. How are these songs used in everyday life generally?
1: Well, um, arguably... They are a cornerstone, a very Palauan concept um, of Palauan life. They are your go-to place, essentially, when you need to turn to Palauan as, as a resource. There's something to fo- fall back on, something to hold on to. For one thing, because they contain everything you need. For instance, um, there are chants detailing who is allowed to fish, which kind of fish when and how much. In other words, they regulate fishing rights issues to ensure sustainable fishing practices. But also in the sense that in a post-colonial world, with all its conflicting realities and dreams, they offer guidance. That's not something that's straightforward or easy in any way. Um, Those chants, they're full of traditional Palauan spirituality, which for many Palauans is in conflict uh, with their Christian faith. Or to turn to the example of fishing, again, they may be in plain conflict with current legislation. Then again, chants have also been used in court, in land-right cases, and they've been accepted as evidence for traditional hereditary claims to land. When there was nothing else to use in in, um, in the sense of evidence, uh, chants um, were actually something that uh, would count. Post-colonial Palau is a very dynamic and complex, I'd even say vibrant place, in that uh, traditional chants play an important role in the ongoing negotiation of where Palau stands and where it is going ideologically, politically. They may speak of a past that in many ways is gone, but they themselves, they're very current. And that's why sometimes they're kind of an anchor for people. They matter today, um, perhaps especially when they lay bare those all those ruptures and rifts of Palau and post-coloniality and its implications in daily life.
0: One thing I love about your new book, which again is Music Worlding in Palau, Chanting, Atmospheres, and Meaningfulness, is that you include QR codes in the text that link to various field recordings you've made in Palau. And these really help bring the discussion, the kind of academic discussion you bring, it, it takes that to a different level and really brings it to life. The first recording you provide in the text is of a man named Willem, who you describe as a highly respected chanter known for his knowledge of traditional music. I want to play a small clip from this particular recording, but before we do that, can you just set it up for listeners? Tell us a little bit about Wilhelm and the context in which you made this recording.
1: Thank you for for this question. Um, William was actually one of the first people I worked with when I first came to Palau. Several people had suggested I go see him, and um, those were the mid-2000s. So the internet was a thing, but not really in Palau. And my entire fieldwork started off with uh, one phone call. (laughs) Um, I'd meet someone, and they'd send me to who they thought would be a good person for me to talk to next, and so on. Um, The ethnographic snowball system. Um, That's how I got in touch with people. And uh, as I said, William really was one of the very first people I met with. So several people had told me to go see him because he was a treasury of traditional knowledge and chance. But also he was a suitable person to meet. Early on, um, owing to his position and traditional hierarchy, so people would make sure that I had talked to him before I would talk to them. There's a deep respect for the social hierarchies that are inscribed into uh, the Palauan community. It's part of Palauan etiquette. So one morning I went to see him. Um, I recall there was someone else opening the door for me. Um, He and his wife were expecting me in the living room, so I was entering the room and they were already sitting there. Uh, when he saw me, he smiled in a, in a very welcoming way. We very briefly introduced ourselves, um, but then he quickly gestured for me to sit down. Clearly, clearly he had something on his mind. Uh, and that was this particular chant that we are about to listen to. Um, he wanted to make sure he was going to chant before we talked. He pointed to my recording device. Uh, well, I pointed to my recording device and uh, he nodded. So I uh, understood. I switched it on and then he began chanting.
0: Great, let's just listen to a little bit of that recording and then I'll ask you something about it.
2: Oh, the Oh, the sarang selao am sexit tolure ngerka o bilmeo ai mang artural ngara so wailah terkawe berbo
0: What can you tell us about the history and meaning of this particular chant that Wilhelm performed for you before even starting your conversation Mm -hmm. with him?
1: Um, Reba bong. Well, it translates like this: um, Reba bong. When you go on top of the Pleiades there we sing to you that you are high-respected. People show respect to you, and they say you are the son of an elit. Uh, an elit is a spirit, uh, a divine, a divine being. Um, you are only one son of your mother. Now you're coming. What are you looking for? Now, um, Reba bong is a traditional title. So the Isols, this particular chant, addresses a traditional rubak, uh, a traditional high chief or leader. And uh, traditional Palauan leadership has a spiritual component. We briefly mentioned that earlier. Um, Palauan social structure is inseparably connected to how Palau first came about. And the mundane is fully infused with the spiritual. Hence the mentioning of an elite, a spirit, uh, in the ancestry of the leader, which makes this particular person, well, Rebebonk. Um, It's the opening for a full assault presentation. Um, It basically opens up the space for a full performance to take place. Uh, You heard the interaction between the chanter chanter and the people around him, who, uh, by responding to his chant, uh, confirmed that, yes, this is so, and yes, please go ahead, keep chanting. That's right, basically. Um, So this brief performance prepared the scene for the main assaults ritually, but also atmospherically. You need a certain, you know, sense of gravity, a certain shared sensation of of meaningfulness for a full ESOL's performance. And this brief chant that uh, Willem offered uh, that morning was performed to create this experiential meaningfulness and anticipation for our conversation, uh, but also, and that obviously I only realized in hindsight, for our entire working relationship.
0: You've mentioned the term meaningfulness a couple times now in our conversation. And I would say that that, along with the term worlding, are two of the kind of key concepts in your new book. And I think they're also a good entry into the more theoretical side of your work. So throughout the book, you draw on rich theoretical traditions that explore phenomenology, affect, new materialisms, embodiment, aesthetics, and more. This might be difficult terrain for non-specialists, so can you just define meaningfulness and worlding as you're using them in your work and perhaps explain how they relate to the broader theoretical approach you're using?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, worlding is a concept from new materialism, and uh, I've adopted the term for my book to basically echo the new materialist idea that uh, body and world, human, human bodies in the world are not separate entities, but that they co-create one another. Um, to put my finger on the how, how do body and world co-create one another in chanting, I need the term meaningfulness. It helps me unpack how profound music making and lived realities are constitutive of one another, one with another, yet always co-present. Um, There's been a lot of wonderful work recently, and perhaps I should mention the name of Kathleen Stewart here, that explores the affective nature of the world. Um, Kathleen Stewart has emphasized how the forms, the rhythms, the refrains of life climax into an intense sense of legibility for every individual person. As people interact with these processes, worlding takes place pun intended, obviously, and life worlds emerge. It's like thinking of something we always thought of as clearly definable, as moving, amorphous, in ongoing transformation. So worlding implies not being, but becoming. Um, To make music in that sense is to partake in a process of becoming with a world in which everything only comes about in relation with one another. There's no existence of anything prior to intertwined worldings in that sense. And so worlding is actually a byproduct of the attunement to an experiential dimension or situation which involves active interaction with the materiality of the processes we are encountering. And this makes worlding a very a deeply embodied process of enactment, as it were. In music, we world. We co-create our life worlds, modulate them, reaffirm them, change them, experiment with them. And, uh, yeah, well, that's where meaningfulness enters the stage. Uh, I use the term in the neo-phenomenological sense um, as diffuse significatory complexity, but um, perhaps we don't need the full technical jargon here. Um, Actually, meaningfulness is self-explanatory, yet obscure. It has to do with the atmospheres that are so crucial to how and chants work. Meaningfulness is, in essence, my conceptual key to understanding the effectivity of atmospheres. Palau chants give access to something opaque, to an intense experiential dimension that cannot otherwise be felt to the full. And this is something my friends in Palau could never stress enough. Um, Meaningfulness is different from meaning. Any given chant can mean a number of things, but its meaningfulness is something else. It's about intensity, affectivity, corporeality and other things all at the same time. It's a shared sensation, um, yet individual. Uh, That's why music and dance can afford such an overwhelming experience, I believe. And thinking with meaningfulness and atmospheres that suggests a type of um, intellectual deep work, maybe, that necessitates thorough consideration of the medium-specific affordances of any given cultural practice. And that would be sound and movement, in the case of music and dance, and how they intersect with the wider world. So uh, to me, it's like putting your ear on the pulse of the movement of life, really.
0: How did you arrive at that particular conceptual framework in the specific case of the ethnographic material you were researching in Palau? Did you know from the beginning that you wanted to work with affect theory and these kind of Kathleen Stewart, Deleuzian kind of concepts? Or did you arrive at that after you had collected all the material?
1: Um well the latter certainly. It's not that I had this idea in my luggage when I uh when I first hopped on the plane to Palau, not at all. And it's also been a long history actually of thinking about uh Palauan uh music and, and dance. Um so I would actually say that when you ask how I arrived at this conceptual framework that that's happened onto sort of intertwining paths. Um, The idea of meaningfulness, that's something that people in Palau, the people I've worked with, would bring up time and again, suggesting that a chant had a deep, often very visceral meaning, but that it would be somewhat pointless, even funny, to go chasing after words to describe it. Um, And then totally unrelated, I happened upon the somewhat obscure neo-phenomenological work that offers various systematic accounts of felt bodily experience and how it is truly essential for how and who we are in this world, we as humans. Um, But that was, you know, 10 years, I believe, after I first um, came to Palau. Um, But this body of work, it immediately um, resonated. It brought to mind how my Palauan friends had framed Palauan music in our lengthy conversations. So there was a very unlikely uh, but also very productive link between um, these very different ways of thinking. And that's how how neo-phenomenology gave an analytical entry point to what mattered the most, not to ethnomusicologists, maybe, but to my Palauan friends.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like you now to read the first paragraph of chapter two in your book. This is an ethnographic vignette from a women's conference in the early 2000s. For listeners who might want to check it out, it's on page 85 of the book. Birgit, would you mind just reading that excerpt? Sure.
1: The girl getting on the stage is about 12 years old. Anxiously, she reaches for the microphone. We are in the early 2000s, and this is Palau's annual women's conference the daughter of a hereditary leader and, as such, a prospective hereditary leader herself, she is about to perform in front of a good hundred women in the audience. Not quite comfortable, she starts her chant. Her voice is a little shaky, and her vocal rendition is closer to a melodic tune than a traditional Esau's recitation, which would be narrated rather than sung. As she concludes the first verse of her chant, silence ensues. A little coughing here and there. Someone spitting out their betel nut quid. The chanter gazes at the audience. The audience seems confused. Finally, one of the women responds. Hmm, way. Others join in. The chanter proceeds to the second stanza, the words of which are familiar to everyone in the room. As the verse is nearing its end, she is getting increasingly uncomfortable, anticipating another awkward moment of silence. But a few of the older women seated in the first rows have started looking at her reassuringly, smiling. As she finishes her verse, raises her eyes to the audience, they respond loudly and clearly, mm, way.
0: Thank you. I love the way you wrote that and really brought that scene to life. It feels like we're there. So let's now listen to that recording that you're describing in that excerpt. So that excerpt that you just read from chapter two in your book and the recording we just heard of the event that you're describing are used in your work to introduce a discussion of shared sensation through music. Can you expand on that idea? How do Palauan chants and performances foster a sense of solidarity? Mm
1: -hmm. Again, this is something that Came about through the unlikely marriage of Palau and neo phenomenological thinking. For neo phenomenologists, shared feelings, shared sensations, that's at the heart of atmospheres and of atmospheric thinking. Atmospheres, in one definition, are feelings put out in space. People share it, engage with it, and they're connected by it also in a bodily way. They incorporate it, that's the technical term. and then, if several people incorporate the same energy—not incorporate, incorporate—if um, they incorporate so emotional energy, basically, that's when many eyes become a we. Um, the technical term again is solidarity incorporation. So, solidarity incorporation is not something that's out there. Um, that you you know um, um, pick from a shelf. It's not a thing. It's something you experience and something you co-create at the same time as you experience it. It's um, essentially atmospheres connecting people. And when you're in such a situation, such an atmosphere, through solidarity and cooperation, you um, that that solidarity and cooperation it can really carry you away. It's a situation where you um, well you're one but not the same. And Palau chants foster such an intense sense of shared sensation by making felt the many connections between Palau as people's home, as a place, as a historical narrative, as a spiritual ra- realm, as a social space, as an archive of individual memory and many other things. It's not something you claim or ask for. It's something that manifests through the intensity of the musical situation.
0: In your book, you also write a lot about musical movement and musical motion. How does that dimension fit into things? How does what we would call dance, as you said, fit into your analysis?
1: Uh, well, as I said earlier, it's, not, it's really not a question whether or not it fits, because any distinction between music and dance is very uh, Music, Musical movement and kinesthesia, bodily movement, structured bodily movement, they belong together. Uh, Sometimes they blend seamlessly. And as an ethnographer, I not only respect the idea, I'm interested in it and what it can do. And in my analyses, which in the book consists of formal analysis combined with ethnography, that seems to make a lot of sense.
0: Let's play one more recording. This one is a group chant. Is there anything you'd like to say to set this recording up before we play it?
1: Um oh yeah this is a recording um made in the 1960s in 1963 to be specific by Barbara B Smith who was uh the pioneer i guess i can say for ethnomusicological research into western pacific island music. and who was also the person to set up the ethnomusicology department at the university of hawaii in honolulu um, so she went to palau and made those recordings um, yeah in the, the mid-60s mid it's a historical recording really
0: great let's play that recording now of a group chant You present this recording in the book to highlight the experiential quality of musical performance. Why do you think it's so important to focus on the sensory, the bodily, the affective dimensions to music as you've been discussing so far, in addition to the more abstract formal qualities that I think most people associate with music scholarship?
1: Because music works in all those different ways at the same time. Uh, But it also combines them into something more than the sum of their parts. And it does so in a way only music can. I'm not saying that sight, touch, smell, what have you can't do something like that. But they will do it in a different way, yield a different effect. There are things only music can do. There are also things only sight or or, or touch can do. Um, But when we talk about music, if you only look at musical form and structure... Um, You're basically only staring at one little piece of a giant and colorful colorful mosaic. And musical analysis is not an end in itself. It's incredibly important. Don't get me wrong. Personally, I uh, I feel a lack of analytical consideration of musical form and structure is one of the greatest weaknesses of current ethnomusicology. But it only allows for a glimpse of one little facet of the phenomenon. The crux, of course, is that language, including the scholarly language I'm using in the book, is bound to always lag behind and fall short of grasping to the full what all music does. That's something we as music scholars have to, well, accept and live with. But as Charles Seeger, one of the pioneers of US American Ethnomusicology, once said, that doesn't mean we should give up on trying.
0: As we approach the end of the conversation, I wonder if you could say something about the political implications to all of this, both in terms of the music or the chanting itself, but also in terms of your analysis of that chanting. What do you see as the political element to all of this?
1: In a nutshell, um, it's a reminder that we must never underestimate the effective power of musical, social and political contexts. That's old news in many ways, of course. But if you look at, for instance, and to use a recent example, the political rallies we've seen during the Trump presidency, there doesn't seem to be enough awareness for just how much of politics is really atmospheric manipulation. There's a reason where there have been election campaign songs for such a long time in the USA, for instance. They're a way of getting people on board, way beyond political arguments, necessities or beliefs. Especially in times when we're seeing a gruesome rise of populist and right-wing governments around the globe. I believe that's something we need to pay much more attention to. And that we also need to learn to analyze in a more systematic way. Political ways and and mass mass movements are not only and perhaps not even predominantly a matter of reasoning and logical argument. They're very much about emotional comfort zones and safe havens of effective belonging. Music goes a long way in affecting and changing these sentiments. And that's a wonderful thing, but it can also be a weapon.
0: Are you continuing your research on Palauan music or have you moved on to any new research projects? What's what's coming down the pike in your academic world? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, I am continuing with my research on Palauan music, but I'm also um, uh, up to something new in a way. I guess when you have such a long history with a place, it's people and their music, uh, you just keep discovering new and exciting things. So, um, yeah. Um, As a matter of fact, my involvement with Palauan Music led me to setting up a larger research project a couple of years ago, larger both in the geographical and in the conceptual sense. It's called Sound Knowledge, Alternative Epistemologies of Music in the Western Pacific Island World. And together with a team of junior scholars, um, I'm currently exploring what we call the sound knowledge, inherent in sound-based cultural practices, including chanting and dancing. So basically the idea is that while we all tend to be quick to think we know what knowledge is and what isn't, in reality there's an incredibly wide range of how people actually know out there. The idea that knowledge is factual and that it can typically be described in words, well, that's something that's really inscribed into European and Eurogenic traditions of thinking and also in colonial thinking, obviously. But, um, you know, in Australia, aboriginals know and learn through sand drawing. In Hawaii, various sea-based cultural practices, including, for instance, surfing, are really ways of understanding, of learning, in a much wider sense than just learning how to navigate the waves. Or take a medical uh, practitioner, wherever they are on this planet, sometimes they need to touch to know what's going on. Um, So there have always been alternative ways of knowing everywhere on this planet. Um, And there's something about the senses and about uh, felt bodily experience that is deeply connected to knowing perhaps even a mode of knowledge in its own right. And so when we look at the performing arts in Micronesia as sound knowledge in this new project, we ask how do the people we work with in Micronesia know through music? And what is it about the sonic experience that allows for these insights? Could this be? And that's quite possibly the the most important question. Could this be, owing to the medium-specific affordances of its medium sound, a kind of knowledge that is potentially helpful in the face of current crises in Micronesia? Um, I mean, think of climate change, think of rising sea levels and how they're just taking away sacred motherland. The thing is, sound seems to be both material and immaterial. That's something that comes up a lot in, in the book as well. And any sonic experience is by nature, multimodal as well. So there's there's no such thing really as musical experience, as an isolated phenomenon. As a material phenomenon, sound connects. Sound waves are basically acoustic vibrations. And if you and me, if we share a room, exposing ourselves to the same sonic experience, then both our bodies will physically resonate with the same sound waves. And there is, for the duration of that sound event, a fleeting material connection between our bodies. And this is actually sympathy in the literal sense. It's sympathetic vibration, and vibration is movement and sound, and that's uh, that's that's the gist of the neo-phenomenological approach to sound. Sound suggests such movement, and that means that sound knowledge, in short, is a knowledge about this kind of connection. Uh, it arises from the experience of, of sound, also the shared experience of sound, and through its material characteristics, it also s- suggests an ethical attunement to one's surroundings. If you think about how most people think about the world, they will usually or typically take a subject and object orientation. You know, there's the thinking subject and there's the external object. So you have a Cartesian subject and uh, 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 they observe science's external object as something that's, you know, somehow out there. But if the environment is an external object, it means it's disconnected, which again means it can be exploited. But when you take sound as the basis for interacting with the world, you're essentially making, making a connection between two or more beings. And yeah, I feel that once one realizes a sound connection that leads to an ecological understanding, an understanding that everyone and everything is connected in a way. There's been mind-opening and wonderful work in eco-musicology about these issues. And uh, if everyone is connected, which is very much a Pacific Islander idea, idea, by the way, then everyone is also responsible for everyone else. Sound gives you that kind of understanding in a way that is much more immediate than your other senses, and it makes it immediate, immediate emotionally, felt bodily, um, and, and also intellectually all at once. So, um, yeah, in a way, sound speaks to an ethically charged connectivity, and music-making can be a cultural strategy to explore and negotiate that connectivity, to discover or rediscover it, to learn about it, basically. This is an idea that uh, ties in very neatly with Pacific Islander ideas about music, dance and community. Um, Well, as I said earlier, sight doesn't connect like that. Touch does connect us to other bodies, but sound can vibrate through a medium and travel over distance, also digitally. Touch has to be right there, right? So um, smell also connects, but it's not like vibrating to the same frequency. And sound, the connection is very powerful, very immediate. And uh, sound knowledge... The project I'm talking about um, is about, you know, understanding the implications and the potential of such connection. Um, But what we realize in sound and in sound only. Yeah, that's what I keep exploring.
0: It's such a fascinating field of study. And I hope that as your sound knowledge project continues into the future, you will come back either on the podcast or publish with our institute in some way to keep us all abreast of what you're doing.
1: i will be happy to.
0: Until then, Birgit Abels, thank you so much for joining me on the channel to talk about your new work and to explain the intricacies of Palawan chanting to us. We really appreciate it.
1: Many, many many thanks.
0: That was Birgit Abels, professor of cultural musicology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit EAS.Asia. That's IIAS.asia. See you next time.